0: Welcome to the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. This podcast focuses on financial planning and investment topics. Our goal is to help you make better financial decisions. We are fierce advocates of fiduciary advice. What does fiduciary mean? It means that anyone who advises you should always put your needs first. We hope you get some value from this episode. Thanks for listening. Standard housekeeping, anything on the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast? Should not be considered individual financial planning or investment advice. For that, we recommend you consult your own properly registered and licensed professional. Welcome back. This is episode 33 of the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. I'm Brian Beasley. With me again is Dan Albert. Good afternoon, Dan. Good afternoon. We are covering the book Excess returns. And if you have not listened to episode 32, please stop right now and go back to episode 32 and start from the beginning with that. As we're going through this, Dan, we we talked first that these various investors that have a history of beating the market for 10 years or more, they didn't all do it perpetually. And in many cases the longer they went, the less their advantage became and although Beating the market appears to be something that is possible. The author here talks about how it's also very, very hard. It takes a lot of discipline. But all these things get in your way. The cognitive biases and just the effort it takes and the work and the expertise, it it just all kind of comes together in a way to kind of stack the deck against most people. Because if you're working a regular job and you've got a family and you've got other things competing for your time and your attention, it's really hard to do this full time. And even if you can, there's just so many things it takes to really that these people did to really do a good job. But in the interest of curiosity for those who are out there who have the time and the effort and the energy and the, and the inclination, Frederick does go into this in the second part of his book where he talks about the investment process.
1: And he really so, does a nice job explaining what it takes and what these people actually these successful people have done.
0: And 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 kudos to him because I mean it is possible and people have done it. It's just that is it probable? And that's that's the question is going to constantly probably be
1: argued for eternity. And there's a lot of good information in the book that we all can glean from to help us make better decisions financially.
0: So in this part where he's talking about the investment process, there are really three areas that he's focusing on. One is finding bargains. He talks about fundamental business analysis, uh, and he talks about valuation. Now, those latter two, fundamental business analysis and valuation, those are those chapters are so technical that we strongly suggest you just get the book for the details there. This is not something you can listen to if you're in your car and your commute. You're not going to listen to that and then magically know what's going on. This is a reference book. This is like a textbook in some of these chapters where you want to go through and really... Study this if stock picking is going to be your thing. So once again, Frederick leads us off with a quote. People are always asking me where the outlook is good, but that's the wrong question. The right question is, where is the outlook most miserable? That's from John Templeton. So if you've ever heard of Franklin Templeton Mutual Funds, John Templeton's name is the reason that company has Templeton in its name. From the book here, in developed countries, top investors pay special attention to some of the following types of stocks. And he goes into more than we can have, we have time for here, but we'll go through a few of them. Ignored stocks. A popular pool top investors like to fish in is stocks that are ignored. These are stocks people don't talk about that receive no attention in the media, and that analysts don't cover. Due to widespread disinterest, such stocks tend to be mispriced. They look for a lack of analyst coverage and low institutional ownership. That kind of makes sense. If everybody and their brother already knows about it, it's probably not going to be that mispriced. Dull and unfashionable stocks Many people believe that nice or spectacular gains can be made on glamour stocks. Dull and unfashionable companies, by contrast, elicit a deep yawn. So, the average investor looks for action in glamour stocks and gives boring businesses a miss. This bias creates an opportunity for the smart investor. Cheap stocks with relatively low expected growth. So the best risk return payoff in these types of stocks is often found in companies that combine the following characteristics. Moderate growth, where earnings are expected to grow about 7% a year in the next five years. And low valuations. And a nice dividend. And a strong track record in growing quarterly earnings. Every once in a while, you find a bargain out there with relatively low growth Everybody's ignoring that because it does. it's not sexy. It doesn't get people excited to hear about that's the future. It's going to change and revolutionize everything. It might just be a good, solid business that's on sale. You want moderate growth, low valuations. It's a combination of things. Another one is companies with little or complex information. Disinterest in such stocks tends to cause mispricing. And the extra effort to find hidden assets that are overlooked by those who don't have the courage to dig deeper can be very rewarding. Another one is small companies. Quote, It seems clear that there is a greater opportunity to find bargains, and overpriced stocks for that matter, in the small cap arena, both because there are more stocks to choose from and because smaller stocks are more likely to be lightly analyzed. And as a result more likely to be mispriced. This is from Joel Greenblatt. Some stocks are ignored for formal reasons because they are perceived as too risky, too marginal, or too dangerous for one's reputation. Professionals avoid them or are not even allowed to buy them. Private investors may not even be aware of their existence or are not particularly attracted to them. So some examples here are single digit stocks between 5 and 10 dollars a share. There's a lot of firms that they say you just in their in their prospectus it says we cannot buy something and invest in things that have that share price. There's some brokerage firms that say to their advisors, you are not allowed to recommend this stock because it has a certain price. They're just too risky as a group. Therefore, nobody can buy those. And what Frederick's saying here is Sometimes, although that is generally true, there might be a diamond in the rough in there. Another one is something called post arbitrage stocks. So these are stocks that remain outstanding after a completion of an acquisition offer. There's a merger and maybe there's some extra shares left over of the old company. Sometimes there's opportunity there is what what some of these investors have found. Another one is negative sentiment stocks. Negative sentiment stocks are stocks that are out of favor with the investment community. Here are a number of potentially attractive uh, turnaround candidates. So he's he's talking about these these companies that sometimes might be under a cloud for whatever reason. Then he talks later about them how they're that they're called turnaround candidates, and there are some of these investors, some of these great investors, have had some success with turnarounds. So. One example would be a once popular stock that's been abandoned by professionals. And maybe it's on sale simply because the professionals no longer own it. Or Fortune Magazine's most despised companies list. There could be sound or great companies that encounter a temporary, huge, but solvable problem. Or companies in weak industries that are about to turn around. Another area he gives some uh, attention to is spinoffs. A spin-off is a company that is spun off entirely or partially from its parent company. But even then, not all spin-offs are created equal. Therefore, spin-off investors have to be selective and look for, and he lists a handful of, of, of features here. One is confirmation by insiders that the deal is attractive. Do the insiders want shares? I mean, heck, if they don't, if the insiders don't even want it, what's that tell you? If management's Wanting to keep the transaction on a low profile. That's kind of interesting. If they're shouting from the rooftops about how great this thing is, then that kind of should tell you, wait a second, why are they trying to sell this so hard? Spinoffs that are structured in a way that benefits shareholders of the parent company. Spinoffs distributed to shareholders of the parent company. So there's two things going on here. One is sometimes a spinoff can be structured in a way that benefits the shareholders, but they don't all just automatically get the shares. And then other times there's deals that everybody who owned the parent company gets shares of the new company. There's nuance to this and complexity that can go on, and we don't want to get into it here. But the, the bottom line is you want a spin-off that's wanted by the people who know the most about the situation. Opportunities in new trends and events. So these are stocks that are penalized too much. There are Some companies that are expected to suffer from a trend. Although it is undeniable that new trends can hurt old industries a lot, sometimes the crowd overestimates the harm the new industry will inflict on the old guard. The opportunity for investors lies in companies that are incorrectly assumed to suffer a lot from the new trend. Another area could be indirect beneficiaries of the new trends. So some examples of secondary beneficiaries that can be compelling investments are suppliers to a strong growth industry so an example from the dot-com era is cisco systems created equipment to help communication happen on the internet people who sell the shovels to the gold miners in a gold rush make more money than the gold miners themselves sometimes and that's what cisco was doing is they were supporting the infrastructure of the internet and they benefited from that greatly peter lynch points out that when stocks are popular It's often a better idea to invest in the mutual fund companies that supply the funds than to invest in the funds themselves. Another area that sometimes has been attractive is clones of a successful innovator. So examples of excellent cloners are Microsoft, which was a cloner of IBM, and Walmart, a cloner of the Kmart business model. And this next one kind of hit me between the eyes and there's some data on this that just came out from our our friends that we follow at Research Affiliates. I'll put a link to that in the episode notes. Stocks that are removed from an index. The removal of a stock from an index usually causes a massive sell-off by all funds that use the index as a benchmark and by all index funds and ETFs that track that index. As certain indexes are used as benchmarks for billions of dollars, this kind of forced selling can be heavy. What makes forced selling even more compelling is that stock underperformance frequently precedes expulsion from an index. In other words, stocks that are removed from an index are often already undervalued before their removal. An example of an excellent opportunity in this category was Woolworths. When the stock left the S&P 500, it lost 50% of its value in a couple of days. No more than three months later, it had more than tripled from its bottom. You got $100. It gets dropped by half. And then that triples. You got $150. It increased by 50%, even if you held it the whole way through. The reason I think this is fascinating is because there there's an article that we just mentioned it. Research affiliates just sent this out recently and they did a study of the when Tesla Motors stock was added to the S P five hundred in twenty twenty. They replaced another company. And for the I apologize, I can't remember the name of the company right now, but so far in the first nine, eight months since this has happened, the company that went off the index that Tesla replaced has outperformed Tesla by 78% since the shift. One would have fared much better buying the thing that got kicked out of the index than to own Tesla during this last few months. Now it's a short period of time, but over and over again, the data shows that in the aggregate, the odds favor companies that are bought right after they fall off the index. And they fall out of the public eye as well. I mean, we're having which creates opportunity, right? Remembering the name of that company. So, on the flip side of this coin, those are some good ideas in developed markets. There's also bad ideas in developed markets. Many stocks that are ignored by the investment community are priced incorrectly due to lack of attention. Conversely, stocks that are in the spotlight of the financial community, stocks that are covered by many analysts that are tracked closely by numerous other professionals and that are followed painstakingly in the media leave much less room for market inefficiencies. As such, well-known stocks are usually priced correctly. They may even be overvalued because investors are willing to pay up for the safety and security that such, such companies convey. So here's some examples. Most IPOs, these are initial public offerings. So a a company is finally having their shares publicly traded on an exchange, an IPO. Top investors have long known what recent studies confirm. Companies that go public tend to significantly underperform the market in the years after their IPO. And this goes back to the cognitive biases. Some of us are going, wait a second. I remember when Facebook went public. I remember when Amazon went public. And look at them now. I remember when Google went public and look at them now, what you're dealing with there is you're dealing with a bias, a cognitive mistake that's going on because you didn't track and remember every company that went public in the last 25 years. We're just keying in on the ones that survived. So there's a survivor bias there. It messes with our ability to make decisions. But what they're saying here is if you look at IPOs across the board, the odds are not much in your favor. Another one is hot stocks. It is natural for people to flock towards hot stocks because they give them the warm fuzzies, because they feel safe, or because they have a great and exciting story to tell. Also, a number of cognitive biases draw investors to hot stocks, such as crowd behavior, feel safe to buy something that many other people buy and hold, extrapolation, the successful past years are extrapolated into the future, thirst for excitement, etc., the problem is, of course, that overexcited investors who trample each other to get their hands on hot stocks often lose their sense of rationality. Making matters worse, the excitement and attention for the company's industry tends to attract new competition within that industry, which puts pressure on the company's profitability. The end result is a hot stock with a high, sky-high valuation that reflects an over-optimistic view of the future even though prospects are anything but spectacular. Yahoo was a huge hot stock in the dot-com internet boom of the late 90s. Google didn't even exist back then. And Yahoo's still around, but they are far from the dominant player in search. Google came out as a second level or a competitor and outperformed Yahoo. And they've become a much stronger business as a result. Another example is uh, AOL. AOL, America Online, was king of the world in the mid-late 90s. We discussed that in .com. A third bad, long idea, long meaning you own the stock in developed markets, is stocks added to an index. We just talked about this. Stocks added to an index. Stocks that are added to an index are seldom bargains for two reasons. First of all, such stocks have usually outperformed the market right before they enter the index. Second, the addition to the index makes these stocks even more expensive due to forced buying by funds that track the index or use this index as a benchmark. So generally speaking, you probably don't want to be looking at IPOs, hot stocks and stocks that just got added to an index as a reason to buy them. If anything, it might be a reason to avoid Some of those things, but he also mentions a few other red flags to maybe kind of get your radar up. If you see these things, this might be something to just to kind of consider the complexity of the business. Do they have an over-reliance on a handful of customers? Have insiders been selling more than they normally do? Now on insider selling, Dan, I mean, I've, I've seen this periodically over time. Many, many times executives are compensated with stock. And so it's natural that when they're gifted stock and that stock is available to them to sell at some point, they don't want to have all their wealth in one thing. In many cases, they're going to likely be selling rather than buying, especially if that's part of their compensation package. So just seeing an insider that's selling doesn't necessarily, shouldn't set off the alarm bells necessarily. But what you want to look for is something out of the ordinary. A disruption of a pattern. Yes, If key people are resigning from the company, if the firm that does the audits has been replaced over and over and over again. So all these publicly traded companies, they have to have all their financial statements audited by a reputable firm. And if you see a lot of change year to year, quarter to quarter over which firm is doing that audit, eh, it might be a red flag. If they're doing filings for the SEC and they're doing those late, they're not doing them on time, that might imply that... Maybe their records aren't as clean as they should be. Maybe something's going on there. And if you see anything related to bad integrity by people who work at the company. Another red flag is potential lack of focus by the company. So sometimes when the going gets tough in a company's base business, they'll decide to try their luck in a totally new industry. A lot of executives don't want to fight the fight and fight the tough battles of resurrecting, resuscitating, and strengthening their base business. Sometimes they'll give up and, On their base business too soon and they're off trying to do something maybe not they're not that great at all these things could be potential red flags there's a section here on humility and skepticism so we're still talking about the investment process so we've talked about finding bargains there's some types of stocks that you want to look for and there's some types of stocks that these investors would typically avoid and in the midst of this whole process of investing and finding bargains there's a whole section here on skepticism and humility. Intelligent investors remain skeptical when they believe they have discovered a bargain. Investors should recheck their investment thesis and search for weaknesses each time they believe they have discovered a bargain. There's like a healthy paranoia here where it's like, oh, I checked all the boxes, I've got my investment philosophy dialed in. I've got my investment strategy dialed in. I've got my checklist of all the criteria and I have looked at this business and filtered through using my, the web searches or whatever it is. And I have identified this company, this stock, it checks all the boxes. It's perfect. It's perfect for my system. There's nothing that could go wrong here. These investors say you should still go back and recheck it again for more weaknesses If you think you've discovered a bargain, they're very, very careful. Marty Whitman notes in The Aggressive Conservative Investor that investors must realize that even if a stock is genuinely undervalued, there is no assurance that investors will make a profit on it. Some stocks can stay undervalued for a very long time. As recommended by many top investors, people should stay as much as possible within their circle of competence. Quote, I never liked to work too hard to understand an investment. So if a potential investment is too complicated or difficult to understand, I'd rather skip it and find something easier to figure out. End quote. From Again, from Joel Greenblatt. Now related to your investment process, he discusses some process mistakes and how to avoid them. The most common process mistake is probably not to have any process to speak of. Many people buy stocks they don't know anything about based on tips or headlines in the media. Another problem is that very few investors have a clear notion of what the investment philosophy as discussed earlier stands for. They pay lip service to the idea that stocks should be purchased when they are cheap and when they sh- and that they should be sold when they are expensive, but they have no clue what cheap and expensive really mean. As a result, they play the market through an investment approach that has little to do with actual investing. So there's people out there who, they really have no process. There's nothing written down. They don't have an investment policy statement. I mean, that's something that... All fiduciary advisors have to have as an investment policy statement, you need to have a reason for what you're doing, a process that you're going to follow when you set out to invest someone else's money. But when people are investing their own money, they seem very, very comfortable having no clue,
1: no process. That just always makes me scratch my head a little bit. Or they've identified one indicator that they're putting 100% of their trust in. So what do you mean by that? Well, some people will take a look at one indicator one number and make a decision based on that one thing and they're not looking at the overall
0: yeah and whatever that one thing is it could be a story it could be that their neighbor owns it it could be that they like the color of the ceo's eyes whatever that one thing is one thing's never really enough you know peter lynch said this you have to know what you own and why you own it and he he quotes you know this baby is a cinch to go up doesn't count. And that's his quote from the 80s. I'll update it. It's going to the moon. It's the future. That's not enough. You need to have a process. People confuse investing with trading. Trading and investing are based on two very different philosophies. Investors purchase and sell when a stock deviates from its intrinsic value. Traders, on the other hand, take their cues from the price action. Although there are a number of highly successful market players that combine trading and investment elements, virtually all of them ignore the fair value concept, so they are basically all traders. Investors must understand the difference between speculation and investing. Speculation can be defined as playing the markets based on hunches, rumors, hope, and wishful thinking. Speculators don't care about the fair value concept. Their only goal is to unload their stocks on unwary buyers at a price above their own purchase price. Speculators believe in the bigger fool theory, which says that paying a foolish price for a stock more than its fair value makes sense if one can expect that someone else, a bigger fool, will later be willing to buy the stock at an even higher price. As such, speculators feel no qualms about buying fundamentally weak stocks if they can see a reason that someone else will later take the stock out of their hands at a higher price. Boy, he writes this like somebody who's a speculator is really kind of a heartless, coldless, soulless person. And I, I know there's people out there who are simply speculating unknowingly. And they don't even realize what they're doing. They're just going along with the herd in a speculative trend, but it is dangerous. You, you know, how are you going to get out when the music stops? Are you going to have a chair? And what are the and, the and you have to think about these things if you're picking individual stocks because nothing goes to the moon in a straight line. And people will say, "Well, if you just hold it long enough," there's also a survivorship bias in the world where the only... the. You have all these examples of businesses that have had lots of volatility and turned out great, such as Amazon, but there's so many businesses that failed, that don't even exist anymore, that were just as popular back in the dot-com era, and they don't even exist anymore.
1: When Frederick is writing this book, he's talking about these professional investors who are investing serious money. As a casual reader, I might be a speculator or a trader with a small percentage of my money, and I might do that for entertainment purposes.
0: Right. We talked about that topic. Uh, Actually, Morgan Housel talked about that topic in the book we covered last, The Psychology of Money. Sometimes you need to scratch that itch. You need to have that piece of your portfolio where you can speculate. And so you're exactly right. When we're talking about, hey, Absolutely no speculation of any kind. I don't think that's what Frederick's getting at. He's just saying, "Hey, don't confuse the two. If you're speculating, at least know that you're speculating, and don't pretend that you're a trader." You know, I've seen people that that that, that think that the whole investment world is nothing but traders. And all they talk about is, hey, i have brand new. I, I've never invested. I've never put any money in before. And they're using the words investing and trading interchangeably with no knowledge of what those really are. So I think it's really good that he covered that. And I think that's an important point that you, know, you can still have a small proportion of your money off to the side doing these kinds of things. Just like you don't put all of your household budget that you bring home. Or you don't take all your income and put it in investments. You have a life. And by the same token... Not everybody puts all of their income into their IRA or their 401k and then just doesn't have a social life. I mean, there's a balancing to all these things. A lack of independence is a mistake. Carrying out an independent due diligence is time consuming. It requires effort and it can only be done by people with the appropriate expertise and experience. Independence also demands courage because it doesn't provide the comfort To hide behind the opinions of others it is therefore understandable that many investors take their cues from professionals they follow the latest advice they overhear in the financial media or they take tips from friends and family admittedly nothing is easier and more tempting than letting other people do the heavy lifting at least in the people that i've interacted with that's like almost everybody most of the time when we engage like when we have a client who wants to own a stock or wants to invest in something it's usually cuz they read an article in financial media the phone call usually or conversation usually start like this i've been doing some research and when you dig you find out that the research they've been doing is not what this gentleman would call research they've been reading some financial media they've been on internet chat rooms talking to people who don't know anything more than they do maybe they're just a little further ahead but they're no more competent they've just done some some level of homework, or in a lot of cases, you know, we had one person that said, Hey, I've been talking to all my neighbors, they just moved into a nice neighborhood and it was full of a bunch of people who were all like minded and successful, and they were excited to be in this new neighborhood. And so, they, they went to some of the neighborhood get togethers and they'd rub elbows with all these people that they looked up to and they thought were successful, and they were very intrigued by. Whatever those people said, that was what they were interested in investing in because they wanted to be just like them. And it's very very appealing and common to do that, but uh, it's not research, that's for sure. Another mistake is related to probabilities and randomness. Morgan Housel talked about luck and risk in his book, The Psychology of Money. So back to the book here. A proper understanding of probability and randomness is hard because it is counterintuitive. Experiments have shown that even experts in statistics can't shut out their misleading intuition when they are faced with certain statistical problems. It is therefore understandable that people tend to make the following mistakes during a due diligence process. Investors often draw conclusions from too few facts and events. This cognitive bias is also referred to as the representative bias. For instance, it is wrong to conclude from the poor sales at one particular shop of a retail chain that the entire chain is not doing well. Investors have problems with causality. They often confuse correlation with causality, or they assume incorrectly that one factor causes another, while in reality is the other way around. Some people use averages to predict future events. For instance, they may use the average length of past bear markets to predict when a new bear market will end, or they will use the average economic rebound from the previous recessions as an indication for the strength by which an economy will, will rebound after a trough, This has hit me a lot because when I'm looking online, I follow people, uh, experts on Twitter. I follow analysts on Twitter and I I see a lot of graphs and charts that get posted. One of the more common things I've been seeing lately is where they will take the current rebound off of the most recent decline and they will line it up against all the previous recoveries and they're comparing them to each other as if one is going to mirror the other. And sometimes they do, but the implications sometimes, they're always cherry picking the data to make it look just so it looks more correlated than maybe it probably is. Sometimes you'll see the scale changed or sometimes you'll see a very limited date range. And that can be very, very dangerous. Short term considerations. True investors focus on the long term and do not incorporate short term elements in their analysis. True investors are are not mesmerized by a company's results over the next quarter. They focus instead on how they see companies growing and prospering over the next couple of years. Now, this flies in the face of people who have a trading mentality. They're saying, hey, uh, I've made a bunch of money in the stock in a week. Should I sell? You're not even investing. Here's a quote from uh, Warren Buffett. Charlie and I continue to believe that short-term market forecasts are poison and should be locked up in a safe place away from children and also from grown-ups who behave in the market like children. He wrote that in his 1992 letter to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. So you don't want to take current stock price as a measure of value. There is a persistent belief amongst inexperienced investors that stocks with a very low price like $3 must be cheap and that stocks with a very high price like $400 must be expensive. You you don't want to use purchase price as an anchor for value. So you don't want to confuse a stock's value with the price at which it was purchased. Many people refuse to accept that a stock's fair value has fallen after they bought it, so they are reluctant to sell below their purchase price. And he talks here, there's too little attention to the valuation quality trade-off. So what's he mean by that? What he means by that is that most of the time, a stock is at a poor valuation for a good reason. They don't deserve to be paid a premium for the stock. The business isn't that great. There is such a thing as cheap crap. Likewise, you can also overpay for quality. So what these great investors that are highlighted in this book are, are, are tasked with is trying to find the true quality that's on sale. And it's hard to do. Warren Buffett again, our goal is to find an outstanding business at a sensible price, not a mediocre business at a bargain price. So the obvious way to counter such mistakes is through a powerful and well-articulated investment philosophy. In addition, the strategy, the implementation of the philosophy in practice must be perfectly compatible with that philosophy equally important is that the strategy be applied consistently and irrespective of market conditions indeed strong discipline in the execution is of paramount importance because far too many investors are tempted to abandon their strategy and philosophy when they hit a rough patch only to find afterwards perhaps a few years later that they would have been better off if they had stuck with their original approach well there's a lot there I mean, first things first, can you write down and tell someone else what your philosophy is of how the markets work? That's your philosophy. And then, can you spell out, either in writing and verbally, what your strategy is? That's like square one, and I think 90% of people out there who are buying individual stocks on their own can't pass that test. How do markets work? What's your strategy? And is the strategy aligned with that philosophy? Because sometimes people will say one thing about how they think the world works, but then their behavior doesn't even match that philosophy. So they're really stacking the deck against themselves, I guess. They're relying on luck. They they really are. They may not realize they're relying on luck. Process, 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 process and he makes an excellent point here. This is just so medium, it's just two paragraphs, but you know, the discipline is, is critical, especially when you hit a rough patch. Each of these great investors had periods where or most of them had situations where they didn't perform that well relative to the overall market for, you know, sometimes they'd have positions that underperformed for a couple of years, but if they're Their thesis for owning that business was still intact. They stuck to their guns. Sometimes they'd add more. But that takes, boy, that's that's just, I mean, it's so easy to say that. It's so easy to even read it and go, well, absolutely, of course. That's totally logical. Of course you would buy a thing. You would would be patient because you believe in something. But sometimes the trick is there's a balancing act here. There's like this dichotomy where you can own something too long and end up, owning something down to, down to the ground as it goes out of business. So you just, you've, you've got to really know whether the business is still intact and still worth owning, which means you're constantly analyzing your holdings. It's work. And lastly here to maintain their independence, top investors avoid the noise and rumors in the media. Sometimes by moving physically to as far away from the chatter as possible. They are not interested in inside information or tips. They ignore analyst recommendations and they don't take their cues from gurus or the crowd. The keys to independence are proprietary knowledge through hard work in order to not have to rely on external research and mental strength to go against the market. This is a mental, emotional game, a psychological game, almost more than it's a mathematical game. Your behavior has more to do with your results than anything. Obviously, you gotta know the math. You gotta understand how to analyze businesses if you're a stock picker. But man, this it, it, is just, just hitting me about how big of a deal it is if you really, truly think that you're gonna do well as a stock picker. With your strategic money, like to your point, if you're dealing with your serious money and you're picking individual stocks, you better be very, very good at it because every business eventually goes away. Every business usually goes away or starts underperforming at some point. So you can't just like buy some great company and think that you're done for your life. It's not just going to repeat what it did early in its
1: development sitting across from your kitchen table at night having dinner with your wife or your husband uh they might be coming at you with an investment suggestion or they might have been talking to their friends and you got to figure out how to square that up with your system and maintain the independence of your investment system and philosophy and so you've got all these other outside pressures that are coming in to play that may impact you or force your hand to take actions that you might not want, otherwise want to. And that
0: just goes to you better have, not only do you need to have your process
1: clear, but if you've got, yeah, like you've. And well documented so you yeah. can share it with your spouse. And if they understand, if they have buy in, you guys are gonna be better off together.
0: And in an ideal situation, your spouse shouldn't be finding out about your system in your will they should have been involved in developing this as a unit, as a family, as a team, because that can alleviate that friction within the family. And this isn't part of the book, but this is just, just some things. I mean, he's talking about the math of the book and the, in the, in the academic piece of it. But what we experience in our, in our business is we're dealing a lot of times with these married couples and they have differing levels of risk tolerance. They have differing opinions on how, Markets work. They may Levels have different of
1: understanding.
0: They may have different education and understanding of all this stuff. So those things are factors. Those are very soft, difficult to measure things. But you need to take those into account, too, because we're not just in this. I mean, a lot of this are not in this for just the money in and of itself. You're you're trying to develop your investment portfolio for another reason. And most often there's loved ones involved in that. And that reason why. And they should be involved in that process. Uh, we see oftentimes where somebody is, uh, one spouse is doing everything and the other one is completely and totally not involved. And that never ends well when the, the baton has to be passed on. And it almost always has to be passed on. <laughs> so uh, now that's all I have for this one. We're going to wrap up this book in the next episode. When we're talking about buying holding and selling and then he even has a section on risk management which is one of our favorite topics once again thanks for listening if you like the podcast please share it with your friends please subscribe please like please comment please find us on social media we are at fierce fiduciary you can also google fierce fiduciary podcast and find us anywhere dan you're at from facebook i'm on facebook at Dan Albert, Dan.Alberth, and I am at Brian C. Beasley on most platforms. We also participate in some Facebook groups. If you're looking to have a deeper conversation there about various things, there's a group called Investing for Beginners. And then Dan and I host a group called Investing and Financial Planning that provides some educational and learning material. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.